be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his second letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to begin a series of messages through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And my records indicate I started a series on 1 Thessalonians six years ago today and uh, never reached uh, 2 Thessalonians, and so I thought we'd move in that direction. Maybe slow, but we're, we're getting there through the various books of the Bible. Sometimes we have selections from books, and sometimes we will track through a whole book or an entire letter of the New Testament, or perhaps one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so I'd like us to study 2 Thessalonians for the next uh, several weeks. A little bit of background, three unique features uh, concerning the city of Thessalonica. It was a very strategic city. It was one of the most populous and important cities in Macedonia. There were 100,000 people, and it was a provincial capital, much like Tampa, a port city with a bustling, growing population. That's the way Thessalonica was. It was also a favored city as a reward for siding with victorious Octavian in the Roman Civil Wars, Thessalonica was granted a designation a free city, and this favored status resulted in more autonomy over local affairs, the right to mint its own coins and tax concessions, and freedom from military occupation. Some believe that this favored status might have led to laziness on the part of some of the believers at Thessalonica, which Paul is going to address in the third chapter of this brief letter. Thirdly, it was a religiously diverse city. Thessalonica was a place of religious pluralism. In addition to a Jewish synagogue, archaeological evidence indicates that the presence of various Greco-Roman deities was in the city. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul says, You Thessalonians turn to God from idols to serve the living God. And so Thessalonica, much like Athens, was filled with idols and idolatry. The background of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is in Acts 17. That's why we read uh, that section of Scripture this morning in one of our readings, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy left Philippi and went to Thessalonica, about 90 miles away, during a second missionary journey. And Paul preached for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. And there were a number of converts, including some Jews and even more Gentiles, and also Greeks and some prominent women of the city. And Paul's missionary success aroused intense opposition. The Jews acted first, and with the help of some bad characters from the marketplace, started a, a riot in the city against the Apostle Paul, accusing him of disturbing the peace and violating Caesar's decrees. Opposition and suffering and persecution was very difficult in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul and Silas and Timothy left the city eventually and traveled west for two days to Berea. But the Jews in Thessalonica found out that Paul was going to Berea. They followed him there, and they stirred up the crowds. And these guys were intense and they were not going to allow the gospel to be preached by the Apostle Paul. And so they stepped up the persecution against him and his followers and helpers. 
Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Athens a short time later, only to be sent back to Macedonia. And Paul tried, according to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 of 2 Thessalonians, he tried but was prevented from revisiting Thessalonica. And Paul traveled from Athens to begin an 18-month ministry in Corinth, where Timothy and Silas rejoined him from Macedonia. We read all about that in Acts 18.5. And a short time later, Paul received an alarming report from Thessalonica concerning a false claim that the day of the Lord had already come, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, and also informing him of the problem of idle believers, believers who were lazy and would not work and sought to mooch off of other believers. And so that's the background for the letter in the context, I want you to notice in these three brief chapters, Paul speaks about three specific groups in Second Thessalonians. Number one, the persecutors, those that were opposed to the preaching of the gospel in chapter one. And secondly, we're going to look at the false teachers in chapter two, spreading all kinds of false doctrine, including saying that the day of the Lord had already come. And then thirdly, idle people willing or unwilling to work. But that's not all that Paul mentions in this brief letter. He also speaks about three specific themes. And these are the overarching themes of this little book. Number one, the revelation of Christ in chapter one. Number two, the rebellion of Antichrist. And we'll study that in chapter two. And then finally, the responsibility of Christians in chapter three in light of the revelation of Jesus and also the rebellion of the Antichrist. And so this morning we'll look at just the first five verses as we consider Paul's greeting in verses one and two, and then Paul's thanksgiving and encouragement in verses three through five. That'll be our outline this morning, so join me in prayer and let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight our strength and our redeemer. Father, you know the needs of everyone in this assembly and those watching live stream. And so I pray that your spirit would move in a mighty way and that, Lord, you would address all the items and concerns for every one of us. I pray that you would capture every one of our hearts and speak to us of eternal things. Lord, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us that we may live as followers of Jesus to your glory and the glory of your name. Bless us now as we study, Lord, we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice Paul's greeting, and it's not extraordinary. This is very similar greeting to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, and also other greetings in Paul's 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice two things in connection to this greeting. Number one, Paul's emphasis on the Thessalonians' union with Christ. 
his emphasis on the Thessalonians' union with Christ. This is how Paul viewed not only the Thessalonian Christians, but also all Christians who have come after them, including us. I think of Paul's words in Colossians 3.3, We have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. There is a sense, whenever someone becomes a Christian, that they experience a death, the very death of the Lord Jesus. Because we are identified with Him. We are in spiritual union with Him. And so we lose ourself. We die to ourself and our sins so that the life of Christ may rise up in every one of us. That Jesus may live out His life in our physical body. That is so important to understand as Christians. And if we let that perspective sink into our spiritual bones, it will change the way we live. We're not simply seeking to follow Jesus' example. We're seeking to allow the Lord Jesus to live His life in us. And that is the essence of our union with Him. Is our perspective on the Christian life that we are hidden in God and that we participate in the love of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that is not our perspective, then living the Christian life is going to be wanting in our own lives. Christianity can be reduced to look like every other world religion where men and women try to please a so-called God and live according to standards that this so-called God might lay down. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus Christ living His life in His children, in His followers. And every day when we wake up, we have to see ourselves with this vital union in Jesus Christ. Do you have that? When you wake up in the morning and you read the Bible and you spend time in prayer, do you have that perspective when tough times come, when you suffer, even when you face persecution? I want you to focus on that union with Christ because Paul says it so many times in so many other books, and here at the very beginning, he stresses it in his greeting to the Thessalonians. And so Paul mentions our union with Christ. The second thing I want you to notice in this greeting is Paul mentions the great benefits of our union with Christ. Two great benefits. It's clear that both grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son. It is because of God's grace alone that we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that. For by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Furthermore, it's the very grace of God in Jesus Christ which sustains these believers in their sanctification and daily walk with the Lord. A lot of people think about the grace of God and they think about their conversion experience only. But we begin not only by grace, ladies and gentlemen, we stand in the grace of God. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans 5, 2. He talks about Christ and he says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And so when we think about the grace of God, it's not just a matter of His kindness in bringing us into the kingdom. It's a matter of a daily walk with Him. And He propels us along by His Spirit. And once again, this union with Christ comes into focus that I live and breathe by the grace of God. And every day is a gift. And every day I must rely upon His strength and His power. I must trust Him as I walk through good times and bad times in this grace in which I'm standing. He also mentions peace. Our peace as Christians, according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians, defies human understanding. That's the kind of peace that we are supposed to experience. And the Bible speaks of the peace of the Christian in two ways, externally and internally. Externally, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Christ, we are enemies of God because of our sin. But whenever we come into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, we experience an external peace with the God of this universe. And we are brought back into fellowship with Him. But there's also an internal peace. Jesus spoke of it. We can enjoy a daily sense of peace in our hearts and lives. According to John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Authentic Christians not only have an external peace, a truce with God, brought back into the family, we can have internal peace. And that's very important, ladies and gentlemen, because we hear so often of Christians troubled and fearful. How many times do we see ourselves fearful, fearful what the future might bring? I'm afraid that I might get a disease. I'm afraid that I might lose my job. I'm afraid that I'll lose significant relationships. Or I'm troubled by what might happen to me in the future. Now the Bible says peace is available. A real, genuine, deep down, organic peace. But it's only in Jesus. And so Paul says in this very beginning, establishing a picture of what Christianity is, you Thessalonians are united to Christ, and you experience the grace of God and the peace of God, and therefore I want to talk with you, assuming those things are true and present in your life. It's convicting to me when I think about God's grace and God's peace. And how often do I consider my union with Jesus in terms of my daily walk with Him? Well, that's Paul's greeting. And now quickly notice in the remainder of the verses, verses 3 through 5, Paul's thanksgiving and encouragement. Look at verses 3 through 5. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right because of your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you endure. 
I want you to notice two things here. Uh, number one, Paul offers thanks and encouragement in light of the Thessalonians' spiritual growth in verses 3 and 4. And then secondly, Paul offers thanks and encouragement in light of the righteous judgment of God in verse 5. And so first of all, Paul offers thanks and encouragement in light of the Thessalonians' spiritual growth. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians this afternoon and take a look at the first chapter there, Paul remembered gratefully that their faith and love and hope were productive. Faith, hope, and love are very characteristic themes of the Apostle Paul. We find this in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. But back in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul gives thanks to God for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And now, in 2 Thessalonians here, he emphasizes that these qualities are progressive. If you look back again, he says, Your faith is growing more and more, and the love of all of you have for one another is increasing. You see, back in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and 4.10, Paul prayed that the love of the Thessalonians might increase and overflow, and that they would love each other more and more. And so it's clear here now in 2 Thessalonians that Paul's earlier prayers were being answered. They were being fulfilled by the Lord, because these folks were growing in their love and their faith but also in their steadfastness, in their endurance. Although Paul does not go on to mention the word hope, the third grace, he does refer to the perseverance or steadfastness, which we find in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. He had written there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he was inspired, they were inspired by hope. In other words, they were enduring. They were having a steadfast walk with Christ because their hope was set upon him, and they were growing in their hope. And so although it is not stated by Paul that their perseverance or steadfastness is growing like their faith and love, he seems to imply it, because he could boast about it among God's churches. And it was flourishing, even in all the persecutions and trials which they were enduring. Remember, those in Thessalonica chased Paul out, and they went after him in Berea. And so more than in other cities, Paul faced persecution and suffering and difficulties as a result of the gospel. Now, here's the main point this morning. You say, Pastor, what is the main point? Well, let me give it to you now. Faith and hope and love are never static in the Christian life. They're never static. We're either growing as believers in our faith and our hope and our love, or we're digressing. There's no middle ground. You know, often we speak of our ability to exercise faith or love or hope as if they were fixed commodities. Like, I, I hope it doesn't rain. Or I hope that I get an A on the test. And that sort of hope never really goes any where beyond that simple hope. But when the Bible talks about hope, there's always a dynamic progression. We grow in our hope. We are to grow in our love for one another. We are to grow in terms 
of our faith. It is not a fixed commodity. It is not a static thing in the Christian life. And that's what Paul is giving thanks for, and that's what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians about. They are growing in their faith. And that's a great challenge for us. Sometimes we say, my hope is in Christ, as if I say, I hope it doesn't rain. <laughs> and you see how incongruous that is? The Bible presents all three of these, faith and hope and love, as dynamic rather than static virtues, always growing and increasing in the life of believers. This is precisely why the Bible speaks of gradations of faith and love and hope. I want you to consider a few examples. First of all, faith. You know, Jesus chastened his disciples for their little faith. In fact, at one point he said, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, amazing things could happen. But then he ran into that centurion who had a servant who was sick, who said, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word, because I have people underneath me in authority too. And Jesus said, I've never seen such great faith, not in all of Israel. You see, faith has to grow. It has to develop. And there are so many good examples of this in the Bible. Abraham comes to mind in Romans 4, 18-21. God came to him and made a promise. And Abraham had to wait. You're going to have a child, Abraham. You're 75 years old. And Abraham had to wait. And Paul says in Romans, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Is your faith growing? Say, John, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. That's good. What about when the hard times come? Are you willing to keep on trusting? I think about Abraham and all the things that he endured. He trusted God, but when he had to wait and wait and wait, he finally began to push the buttons and pull the strings, and he had a child, Ishmael. But that was not God's intended goal. Later on, God gave him Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, you see this progression of a growing man in faith. God called him to go up and sacrifice that son. I was reading an article the other day about the possibility that Abraham probably got so focused on Isaac. Isaac could have been an idol to him. He had waited all of his life for the son of the promise. And then the Lord God said, take that son that you have looked forward to for so many years and take him up to the mount and sacrifice him. And Abraham, growing in faith, finally went up and obeyed, and God stopped him at the moment of sacrificing his own son and gave him a picture of what would take place many years later with God's one and only son, the Lord Jesus when the knife would fall and the execution would take place. Abraham had a faith 
and it grew and grew and grew. And that's what the Lord Jesus wants us to do, to walk by faith and continue to see our faith grow by trusting him. Well, not only faith, but also love. You know, Jesus speaks of gradations of love. He said himself in John 15, Greater love hath no man than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. The Lord Jesus had the greatest love. Just like John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Is your love growing? Your love for Jesus Christ and your love for one another. It's very important that we examine that. Do we really love better now than we did years ago as Christians? I love the story in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, where Jesus speaks of that sinful woman who came into the house as Jesus was being hosted by Simon the Pharisee. And she began to anoint Jesus' feet with her tears. And she began to wipe the water away with her hair. She didn't care who was watching. She came in and touched a Jewish man. She was a sinful woman. And Simon and others perhaps thought in their hearts, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. And Jesus went on to tell a beautiful story about this woman, about the fact that those who know that they need forgiveness love much, but others who don't see the value of their forgiveness love little. And that's the way the chapter concludes in 747. For this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. How do you see your forgiveness? Is there a growing love, a growing dependency in your life? upon the Lord Jesus? Is there a growing love in your heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? Does that demonstrate itself in tangible acts of love and kindness toward one another? Very convicting, once again, for us to look at our lives. Is my faith growing? Is my love for others and for Christ growing? And then finally, hope steadfastness of hope. You know, hope is not something that is silly and superficial. For the Christian, it says, I have something that stabilizes me. I look forward one day to seeing Christ again. I look forward one day to hearing from Him, well done, good and faithful servant. And all other hopes in this life can be dashed. But that is the singular hope that must be maintained. That my life has as its fulcrum my relationship to Jesus Christ. And I know that He's coming again. And my whole life should be to please Him for that single goal. I think about the Apostle Peter. You know, faith or hope can be shaken. Peter lost hope at one point. He failed when he denied Jesus three times. But later, his hope became mature and steadfast as he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And then many years later, insisted that he be crucified upside down. His hope was rock solid. It grew. 
and grew in the Lord Jesus. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the great reformer in England and author of the Book of Common Prayer, his hope was fixed on Christ. But he began to write several recantations when Bloody Mary came to the throne and condemned him to death. Nevertheless, he withdrew his recantations and he was burned at the stake in 1556, I believe. And while he was being burned, he put his hand that wrote the recantations into the fire first as testimony of his error and repentance and the fact that his hope was firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus in spite of what might happen to him. I'd like to have a faith like that. I'd like to have a hope that is that rock solid so that the things in life, the circumstances that come my way, don't push me in one direction or the other. But I remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians concerning thanksgiving for their faith and hope and love and the fact that all three were developing and growing. But notice one last thing. Paul offers thanksgiving and encouragement in light of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 5, an unusual verse. He says, this is evidence, these growing virtues of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Now, Paul has spoken of their hope in the context of suffering, persecutions, and afflictions for the gospel. And here in verse 5, he says something that is, at first glance, seems a little strange. In summary, Paul says that the Thessalonians' endurance of suffering and persecutions is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? You know, next time together, that we're together in the remainder of this chapter, Paul is going to talk about the righteous judgment that falls on those who are persecuting Paul and his companions. But here, he says, the very fact that you suffer demonstrates, in one aspect, the righteous judgment of God. What does he mean by that? Well, here's a hint. In 1 Peter 4, 12-19, which we read this morning, if you look at the last few verses, verse 16 and following, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, it is the, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying a true mark of our union with Christ is that we suffer with and for Jesus in this life. And that is part of the righteous judgment of God because, you see, tribulation and persecutions happen to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the righteous judgment of God has already fallen on Jesus. And therefore, it will not fall on those who are in Jesus. But it is the beginning of God's judgment. I find myself in Christ and God's judgment that was owed to me has fallen on His Son, Jesus Christ. Another wonderful virtue of being united to Christ and in the body of Christ. And it, 
was a tough thing. With difficulty, the righteous is saved. We were saved by Jesus' death on the cross. It was most difficult for him to suffer that physical agony, but worse, for him to pay the penalty in his atonement for our sins. It was with difficulty that the righteous is saved. But all of God's judgment fell on Jesus. But for those who are outside of Jesus, we'll see next time. That judgment and the eternal damnation that comes with it will fall upon them. Let me challenge you this morning. Don't reject Christ. If you've never enjoyed a personal relationship with Him and found yourself and your sins forgiven and found yourself in Christ Jesus with a personal relationship to Him, I invite you to do that today. The Bible says, For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he or she will be saved. Do you know the Lord Jesus in truth? If so, all these encouragements and thanksgivings are for you as well as the Thessalonians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this marvelous letter. We thank you for the Apostle Paul that could give us so much encouragement and give us thanks. Thanks to God on behalf of these believers and their perseverance, their hope, and their love. Father, I pray this morning that all of our hope and faith and love would be growing in our lives. Help us not to back off. Help us not to be like the individuals in the sower and the seed parable, where we demonstrate love or faith or hope for a short time, but then it fizzles out or goes away. Lord, help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labors are not in vain as we seek to multiply love and hope and faith in our lives. Do all these things and more, Lord. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.